The following is a paid commercial program, and the views expressed are those of the speaker and do not reflect the views or opinions of iHeartRadio, its staff, or management. Good day, and thank you for joining us. It's time for Business Sense Radio with your host, Edward King. Edward always has interesting people to talk to and fascinating topics, and today is no exception. So let's check in with Edward King and learn all about today's program. Edward? Yeah, thank you very much, Mark. You know, today what we're going to do is we're going to tackle energy cost and policies that affect all of us. You know, there's so much information, so many voices bouncing around the internet and in the news that it is hard to know what the truth is. There's no getting around the fact that the price of gas and diesel is more than double than just one year ago. One year ago, I paid $3.29 a gallon. Today, I paid $6.85. Plainly, that's not the 42% inflation rate our government is telling us, but that's another story. Continuing with some of our previous programs, today I want to dig deeper, filter through the noise and misinformation, and help you decide what the issues are and how they're impacting and why they're impacting your energy costs. So today I want to get right into it. Today our guest is Dr. C. Michael Hogan. Dr. Hogan has served as Editor-in-Chief of the Encyclopedia of Earth in 2012. In addition to authoring a number of papers for the encyclopedia, he is a physicist who has published over 1,220 peer-reviewed articles. Very busy man. Spanning fields of molecular biology, quantum spin waves, we probably won't hear about that today, atmospheric physics, biogeochemistry, hydrological modeling, species population dynamics, ecological modeling, and environmental impact analysts, former president and chief technical officer of Earth Metrics Inc., also a director of Environmental Systems Laboratory Unit of ESL Inc., research scientist at NASA Ames Research Center, member of the graduate faculty at the University of Santa Clara and San Jose State University. Michael has conducted ecological research in 31 different countries, so he's really been around and very deeply involved in these issues for many years. He has also been a member of the National Academy of Sciences Transportation Research Board, founding director of the Association of Environmental Professionals, and he received his PhD in physics from Stanford University and Bachelor of Science from Princeton University. And we're very pleased to have him on board with us today. So I would like to introduce Dr. Hogan. Michael, welcome. Thank you, Edward. So before we get and tackle today's issues, I have to ask you, recently you wrote an article on why PG&E rates are 80% higher than the U.S. average. And many of us here think that it's California taxes and regulations. Are we missing something? So share with us why this is. Well, California taxes and regulations play a part, Mm -hmm. but... The fundamental reason is the extreme subsidies that uh, we have to give to the solar industry in particular to make it at all viable. 
solar technology <clears throat> in large solar farms is not really uh, financially competitive with other forms of power generation. Okay. And uh, while it's a noble goal to talk about renewable energy, mm -hmm. we have to be pragmatic about what the real costs are and the real benefits. And that's something we have not really done as a state. Well, certainly it hasn't been shared with the rest of the population. So I'm hoping that someone dug into that. Now, another interesting thing is California has been closing its nuclear plants, which my understanding is it's zero emission and highly economical and efficient form of power. So why is California and other countries like Germany closing nuclear power plants? Well, the motivations for closing these plants are totally political and ideologically. They are not based upon <clears throat> environmental impact, and mm -hmm. they're not based upon any kind of financial or safety concerns. Mm -hmm. The truth is that uh, the two safest forms of energy in the world are wind and nuclear. And, oh. and all of the other forms of energy generation have higher deaths associated with them, either in the personnel or the environment. So we need to, to look at the facts that nuclear is actually a very safe form of energy, and it's very economically viable. And 30 or 40 years from now, we will all be using 80% nuclear energy. Well, I sure hope so. Now, I've done some recent uh, reading about dual fuel reactors. Familiar with that? Yes. And what's the advantage of these dual fuel reactors over the current versions? Well, the dual fuel reactors uh, produce less radioactive waste and mm -hmm. waste that lasts for uh, lesser times. But the real future, if you want to talk about the, the ultimate future, yeah. It's going to be the toroidal fusion reactors, oh. which are just in the early stage of commercial development in Europe. And uh, we need a lot more investment and mm -hmm. leadership to promote that because the, the technology is viable. It's been produced uh, on small scales, mm -hmm. but it has to be developed and it has zero radioactive waste. Wow. Well, that's a big step. How is it actually delivered in terms of placement? Because right now we've been building very large reactors covering a, a real span of distance. Is this new technology you're talking about going to duplicate that footprint? or The footprint should be less because the, the torus itself that contains the plasma is only about uh, three meters in radius. I see so that the footprint is, is negligible. Do you think we'll ever be able to get, uh, you know, nuclear sourcing at a town level where almost every medium to large city would have its own miniature little nuclear power generator? No reason why not to. Is that a viable direction or not necessary? No, that's totally viable. But mm -hmm. we really need, uh, this is where we really need serious research and development money poured in. Yeah. Uh, the past uh, decade of, of U.S. policies have poured money into solar, wind, mm -hmm. biomass, which have their place, mm -hmm. but we really need a massive input of l both leadership and capital into the fusion mm -hmm. reactor. You know, for decades or 100 years, I would say, the world has been powered by coal. So, what kind of power plant is going to be best? Now, you kind of just tackled it with saying wind, 
and with nuclear. Now, when we talk about wind, you know, how is that really functioning when we've got, you know, inconsistencies with the sources? Same for solar as well. I mean, you don't get much solar coming out of the night sky. What right. about wind? I mean, there there isn't any place on the world where wind is 100% of the time. Nowhere. Fundamentally, we need to look at our electric power grids as having a reliable base load. Mm -hmm. We need 70 to 80% of our power in reliable 24-7 sources. And uh, the Brookings Institute has done a magnificent study answering the question you pose. Let's all agree that we can do better than burning coal. That's not really an argument. Okay. But what do we replace it with for our 70 to 80% baseload? Mm-hmm. Certainly not wind or solar. We yeah. wouldn't have enough reliable 24-7 energy in the grid. The three sources that Brookings came up with, uh, and this, this really emulates calculations I've done. It's not a, it's not a breakthrough study. It's just a, it's just a comprehensive study of the energy sources. And they found that the three best power plants to replace the coal would be combined cycle natural gas, would be hydroelectric power, or would be nuclear power. Mm -hmm. And wind comes a close fourth, but solar isn't even in the map in terms of of replacing it. from. And they're looking at not just financial feasibility, they are looking primarily at environmental benefits of how, how much toxics and carbon are we adding to the atmosphere and the environment with these different plants. Very good point. So, how bad is coal? I mean, you know, obviously we're moving away from coal. Uh, you know, what's disconcerting for me, because I understand why we're leaving coal, but uh, what I'm saying is in China, as an example, they're building 43 new coal plants. and in India, 72% of their electrical generation comes from coal. Those are the two largest populations in the world, concentrated populations, and they're adding tons and tons of pollution. So, how can we get people to move away from coal? And is there some forms of coal power plants that are less damaging than maybe some of the more traditional things? Your coal or my coal. So, <laughs> it is true. Uh, when I was in China, they're building one a week, one wow. new, totally huge coal-fired power plant. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to look at this as a global problem. It's it, What good does it do if the United States goes, goes all solar and we still have China building that many plants? Right. It doesn't really serve the globe very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is difference in coal, but primarily in, uh, in our different regions. In the West, in Western Europe, United States, our coal burning is as good as it can get, and it's improving. Yeah. In China, using the Mongolian coal, uh, you you actually produce roughly twice as many sulfur dioxide and carbon emissions as U.S. coal. So if we're going to have coal, we ought to have it here. Yeah. But we can, as I said earlier, we can get rid of coal, phase it out here with combined cycle natural gas, hydroelectric, and nuclear. Mm-hmm. Um, But what we should really concentrate on is not so much our micromanagement in the United States, but how can we really encourage China, India, and other countries that are heavily dependent on coal to convert to more clean sources? Well, I mean, the facts seem to speak for themselves. 
why is it that China and India, but let's go back to China, specifically building new coal plants, couldn't they build nuclear plants instead? Just economics. Economics. They're just going for low low cost. Low cost and quick installation. And uh, by their own government figures in China, they know that the coal burning plants kill 400,000 Chinese people per year. Wow. It's a huge environmental and mortality impact. And they still do it because it's all about the lowest cost. Well, I don't think that China's government has got a good track record about caring about their people. <laughs> I mean, right now they have 400 million people in lockdown. And 10 out of the, what, 11 or 12 major cities are on, under lockdown. Uh, obviously, they're not going the right direction, which is too bad because, you know, they are like the number one manufacturing country in the world. I can understand their need for power. I mean, it's, it's self-evidence if we think about it. But we really need to limit greenhouse gases. But I have a question for you, and maybe not a lot of people understand this. Why is it there's one side of the political spectrum who is completely focused on carbon dioxide as opposed to some of the other greenhouse gases? I mean, you're an expert in this, so I'm well, coming to you for That's a very good question. It. And again, this is ideology over science. Okay. That the major greenhouse gases are methane, water vapor, mm-hmm. nitrous oxide, nitrogen trifluoride. And all of these gases are much more potent and long-lasting in the atmosphere than carbon dioxide. Mm. So why are we picking on carbon dioxide? Well, it's an ideological target because it represents the fossil fuel in- industry. Mm. And that's why it is being singled out when we could actually achieve much more if we focused on the more potent greenhouse gases. Okay. So, I, I like your idea. Now, methane or this nitrogen trifluoride, where does that sourced? Well, methane is primarily... Livestock. Don't say cows, because I like meat. <laughs> I'm sorry. Maybe so, fish do this, too, so I don't know. No, it's primarily ruminants, is sheep and cows. Yeah. Uh, and there, you know, there are certain things, certain feeds that can be adopted. That it's something we can make progress in if we really put our minds to it. Uh, the big irony, nitrogen trifluoride is the most potent greenhouse gas. It's the fastest-growing greenhouse gas. And do you know where the primary origin of nitrogen trifluoride is? Um, politicians. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. That's, levity is good. That's, that's, good. that's second. Uh, the primary source is the manufacture of solar panels. Oh, no. <laughs> it seems like two steps forward and three steps back when, an, when you get into that subject. An inconvenient truth. An inconvenient truth. Okay, good. I don't think that we've ever heard that that word and term. So these dangerous gases, how can we focus on the, well, the methane, I think you had mentioned that there are some feeds that should be fed to cows. And I, off the top of my head, I can't remember what it is, but it, it was something that I saw like a year or so ago. But what about water vapor? You had brought that up. That seems like a natural byproduct of just the earth being round. That's just random. There's nothing we can really do in, in climate engineering that's mm-hmm. going to have a big impact. Now, you had also mentioned hydroelectric. We haven't talked about geothermal. Later on, we're going to talk about the connection between 
lithium production and geothermal because of that one area I had mentioned to you before. But um, isn't hydroelectric also kind of dependent on <clears throat> wet years versus drought years or only extreme droughts have an impact on that? Well, uh, mostly extreme droughts have, have a big impact. If we would better manage our water resources, uh, we could really use hydro more and more effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not it's not limited so much by drought uh, as it is by storage. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that's somewhat related is that there have been water storage proposals made in the middle Sacramento River. There have been some implemented mm-hmm. where we can really store more water and uh, therefore make it more available yeah. uh, later in the year for farmers. And those haven't been implemented. That's probably the best thing we could do forward. But the hydroelectric is is a life of its own. It's mm-hmm. it's stable. It's reliable. It can survive drought years. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing, too, is one of the things that you alluded to earlier is that, you know, balancing out the power grid. Because, you know, one of the challenges, if you're drawing from solar and drawing from wind during the daytime wind you can catch whenever there's wind the alternative would be to fill in the gaps with nuclear is this a good thought process that that we've got a baseline of nuclear provide i'm thinking about for the for the environment a baseline of nuclear along with hydro and then enjoying the benefits of the solar and the wind now the solar and wind always seems to have an issue of not being available at night when the demands are high. And later on, we can talk about, you know, the issues with batteries. But let's get back into solar because you had pointed out something earlier. So with today's push in solar energy sources, why don't we start talking about the dark side of the solar panels? Okay, so what I want everybody to know is that having rooftop solar is generally a good project. Okay. Um, with some caveats I may get to. But the biggest concern is the large solar farms down in the desert. Mm -hmm. And these have a number of adverse environmental impacts. Uh, First of all, they take a huge amount of footprint of uh, reducing viable desert habitat. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not just when you install them, but they require continual maintenance and and, uh, workmen and machinery going through these so that the habitat loss of a large solar farm is material. And the other thing that is a downside of the large solar arrays is the, um, the, the, the fundamental need to wheel the power. We have, it, it's generated in the desert, but we have to wheel it to where people live, and we have intrinsic losses in that movement of power. Um, but the other thing that's not really well understood uh, by the general public, I think, is the financial viability. Many of these large solar arrays are just not financially viable. We have to keep pumping money into them. As I said earlier, that's one of the main reasons our PG&E rates are high in California and Southern California Edison, uh, because we have to subsidize these arrays. They're not, and we may get advances that will help us with solar technology for these large solar arrays, but presently they're not fundamentally financially viable is is there any future for solar in in terms of these massive farms 
I think there's some future, but I think, again, uh, we will be much smarter if we to stay with the rooftop solar installations for mm-hmm. our commercial and residential facilities. Mm-hmm. And then the other dark side of solar is the amount of arsenic in the panels. Uh, it's a huge amount of arsenic, um, and we don't have any uniform mandatory recycling to make sure that the arsenic uh, goes somewhere other than the environment. So, in fact, we have we don't even have any systematic tracking of how much arsenic gets in the groundwater. We do know that in an ongoing way, about 9% of the uh, wells tested in the United States, including California, have arsenic levels that are... Uh, essentially carcinogenic and adverse to human health. So we know arsenic in the environment is a big problem, and we're really not doing what we should be doing in terms of responsibility. In fact, many of our panels uh, are not even disposed in, in U.S. soil because the, uh, the toxicity is so high. So we ship them in large container ships to um, places like China and Bangladesh, where they mm. they dispose of them in open pit landfills. And one of my articles recently, I have a photo of the children in Bangladesh, three to five-year-old children, playing in the open pit uh, landfills just, that are just strewn with uh, solar panels and also mm. discarded electric vehicle batteries. So they're leaching the arsenic into the air and into the soil right there where children families are playing or helping to recycle or something like that no, without it's, protection it's just it's direct contact it's not in the atmosphere it's just the children come into contact with I see. they they view it as a playground right now if there's arsenic leaching out of it in the recycling step the end of life is there a lot of arsenic issues at the manufacturing end of this no, that's that's well controlled okay. in, in the manufacturing side. There are some uh, reported industrial deaths, but uh, that's not significant. That's not a large number. It's it's really in the after use cycle. Okay, so just finishing this up. So we have solar panels on our homes and in small location usages, which makes sense because you can power your home during the day directly, right, or right. your manufacturing facility. If we're looking at these large solar farms, which in essence, every day they're operating, they're operating at a loss. So in essence, if you're thinking from a business perspective, what you're doing, the cost is a dollar and 80 cents is your, your product produced. So you're losing 20, 20 cents every time you spend a dollar. What is the life expectancy of these farms? I mean, it certainly isn't hundreds of years. I mean, they go out there and they build tens of thousands of these panels that are strewn throughout the desert areas. If you go down in Southern California, taking up a great deal of area, upsetting the environment, right? The desert environment. So how long are those going to last? Well, you get estimates ranging from seven to 20 years. And the, the, the thing that makes it very complicated is that we are getting improvements in technology, mm-hmm. but because of that, the panels get outdated much more rapidly than original projections. Oh. So that's good. I think it's just a area where we're getting ahead of our skis. Mm-hmm. We're pushing more solar than we, we are able to absorb financially or in terms of baseload uh, comparisons in our system. 
Okay. Well, what we need to do right now is we need to take a quick break for our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Did you know that teachers unions worked with the CDC to keep our schools closed? Did you know that teachers unions contracted with school districts to take away your choice to decide whether or not to mask your child? California Parents United knew, and because of that betrayal, CPU is launching an initiative to give you your voice back. Join us in Corral del Tierra on Thursday, May 19th for the CPU Parents' Rights Initiative Launch and Candidate Forum. To RSVP, go to CaliforniaParentsUnited.org. That's California parentsunited.org. See you there. Well, thank you for listening to our sponsors. I hope that you support them. Now, we were talking about solar energy, and obviously the need for battery storage comes to mind in regards to solar, but as well as with electrical vehicles. What is going on with battery technology? So, lithium, which seems to have some down environmental issues, Can you share with us one of the problems and the issues with the lithium production for batteries? Well, the main issue is just the energy intensivity of the manufacture of the Mm -hmm. lithium-ion batteries. Uh, Again, we have a number of toxic materials that go in that that are energy-intensive to mine, transport. But um, fundamentally, you can think of a a lithium-ion battery, say for an electric vehicle, as something that uh, takes so much energy to manufacture that you have to drive your electric vehicle for eight years just to pay back that manufacturing in- energy. Hmm. So it's a huge energy deficit. Uh, what the politicians always like to talk about is the operating electricity. They say, well, uh, it's cheaper to drive your car on electricity because your charge doesn't take as much as buying gas. Mm-hmm. But what you have to look at with any of these energy systems is life cycle. You have to look at the manufacturing cost of the electric battery and the disposal costs. And again, as with solar panels, we don't have any uh, prescribed method for recycling electric vehicle batteries. So again, they go on large cargo ships to Bangladesh and other poor countries and are disposed of in open pit landfills for the most part. Mm-hmm. Now, because I forgot to ask you this one question, I've read that there has been some investigation for, back to the solar, uh, putting solar farms throughout a mass amount of the Sahara Desert. Have you seen those studies where they're literally like the size of uh, Rhode Island or something like that, just making it one gigantic solar panel environment? Is that a viable or is that just kind of pie in the sky? Well, it's eventually viable. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, we have to come to a little higher solar efficiency to make it work. Mm -hmm. Uh, It does. I've I've hiked in the Sierra and ridden camels in the Sierra. I mean, in the the Sahara Sahara Desert. Mm -hmm. And uh, biologically, it's not as rich and, and biologically significant as our United States deserts. So that would be a plus for for doing a Sahara project. Uh, you also have the the dunes environment where you have the natural tilt built into to the solar farm. Mm-hmm. So it's not outrageous, but again, I think we're getting ahead of our skis and in, in pushing these projects before we will get better and better at solar. It may mm-hmm. take us ten or twenty years, uh, and there there will be a place for solar. Yeah, but again, it's not going to give us the baseload. And we have the nuclear now technology. We have it now. Yeah. And 
I'm I'm still curious. Now I know politics always play a major role in bad decisions. I mean, any decision. <laughs> Sorry, I, I can let that one pass me by. But it seems to me that instead of closing down the Diablo power plant, we should be building two or three of them right here in California because we want to transition vehicles from gas and diesel into an electrical-based environment. To do that, we would need more power. Yes, we'd need more reliable base power. And we need it now because, you know, I've read recent articles like 50% of the EV, you know, charging stations up in the Bay Area are non-functioning. It's a very high percent. Well, the other fact you need to consider is that um, in our government's virtue signaling in California, mm-hmm. they're they're pushing the electric vehicle. Uh but most people charge their electric vehicles late at night when the sun isn't shining. Yeah. So where do you think we get that energy? We import coal-powered energy in large amounts uh, from outside the state of California. So we have additional wheeling costs and very high pollution costs because we do not have a reliable base load in mm-hmm. California. And as you start started out, both Germany and California are ones that have gotten most ahead of their skis on closing down baseload. And so both Germany and California are the closest grids to collapse. They've been very close to, they've been in blackout territory at times. And the other downside of that that we've seen recently is because of Germany's dependence on foreign Russian oil, Mm -hmm. they're not only burning dirty or oil uh, instead of using their nuclear plants, Mm -hmm. but they are totally dependent on Russia. So they have no ability to sanction Russia with regard to oil. And and if it weren't for the United States and Germany buying the massive amount of Russian oil, we wouldn't have had a Ukraine war. We are funding between Germany and Biden's first year in office. We are funding uh, Russia at the rate of 200 billion per year. Mm. Russia is not a rich country. That's their right. war chest is the funds we've given them because we don't have baseload. Well, and I certainly can understand that. And it seems to me that Russia, sh- I'm not Russia, Germany should wake up in terms of their dependence. And certainly I've heard some rhetoric coming from the uh, German government that they are looking and trying to wean themselves off of the the nipple, you might say, of, of Russian energy. But solar and wind are not going to be great answers. Now, we also didn't talk about, you know, wind turbines. I hear a lot of stories, and you're you're much better to answer this. I hear stories that there are injuries and damages to the bird population due to wind turbines. Is that kind of true, or is it overblown for one reason or it's another? A, it's underblown. Uh, underblown. In North America, we kill about 5 million birds a year. Mm-hmm. And... From an ecological standpoint, it's much worse than that because the the species of birds we kill are very high in raptors, which is a keystone species, mm-hmm. an apex species. So that it's not just the number of birds. You you know you might say if you're not if you don't care a lot about birds, well, yeah. who cares about a lot of sparrows? Right. But it's really uh, key species in the ecosystem that we're killing. And you might say, um, why, why is this? And the reason is that the same places 
that have good wind velocities are the same raptor corridors where the raptors like to soar. Mm -hmm. So the good news is we're getting better about this. In the beginning, when we designed the wind farm at Altamont Pass, that was a classic location of bird killing. So we're getting better and better about siting the wind turbines. Uh, but that's still a downside. The other downside of wind is that we have no way to recycle the turbines, which only have a lifespan of about a decade. And these are massive manufacturing items. Yeah, well, we've all seen pictures of fires that are going on in, uh, up at the top part of the wind turbine. So how can we solve, because I, I don't want to leave this one little topic about the bird damage is there a way that we can solve it? Is there like some sort of reflective lighting that we can put on it to ward away the, the birds? Or you're just, your answer so far has been, well, we put them in places that we don't see a lot of birds. Well, sighting is the number one thing. There are ways of, of lighting and acoustics that we can reduce the bird mm -hmm. population. So all of these things are viable. We just need to study these things much more carefully and do a better job, uh, not just throw up wind turbines where somebody wants to put them up for political reasons. So we need to look at the bigger pictures when we're making decisions, both solar, wind, the use or the lack of neglect of nuclear and so on and so forth. We are so narrow-minded so narrow focused and and it always seems to be political because in that sense solar if we fix the problems wind if we place it properly i suppose keeping it out of migration patterns and other things like that would be viable additions to our overall energy solutions Correct. if we would only look at it from the combined version of it's economically positive Right, unlike what what we were talking about, the one dollars worth of cost versus eighty cents worth of of sales volume. So, why are we still not thinking broader? Because I know you come from an environmental background. You you have a, a great knowledge, broad knowledge of that in many different aspects, and looking at your. Vitae, you've had you've been around the block a lot. Why is it we can't work together to make this thing work for all of us? Well, we really have to promulgate the information, uh, the truth of what mm -hmm. these systems are like, what the good and bad is. Mm -hmm. Instead, uh, we're making political decisions. We have people in Washington that are campaigning on one agenda, saying we should have all green energy, when green doesn't even mean anything. Yeah. <laughs> and. So we need to keep looking at the facts, keep understanding that, yes, we need to replace coal-fired plants. Mm -hmm. What's the best way to do it? We need to keep base load so we won't be vulnerable to blackouts and foreign blackmail. Mm -hmm. um, we need to keep our eye focused on economic viability because it really doesn't make a lot of sense to us as a society to have solutions that lead us into bankruptcy. Right. And and part of our inflation equation is that we're not making good decisions on energy investment. Mm -hmm. And and I think the other thing that you did mention earlier is that we have to look at this as a global community. And it you know when you look at the literally the two largest countries in the world who are producing vastly the most um, environmental pollution, we we really all have to recognize that. Instead of beating up 
America, by Americans, what we have to do is we have to refocus our, our viewpoint to spread out to change the countries that are actually causing the most global problems. Because, as I had mentioned to you before in earlier conversations, so my brother works for the California version of the EPA, and oftentimes we'll talk about how you know, the, the the wind will blow from China all the way across into North America pollution that w- we didn't cause. So, why can't we get there? I mean, what is the resistance factor? We've talked about China. They, they're growing. They're producing a new power plant, you said, every day. Every week. Every week, excuse me. Got to get that correct. Why are we getting nowhere with it? Well, one of the, the big problems internationally was the Paris Accord. And the Paris Accord was a sound good, feel good environmental mm-hmm. agreement. But the first thing that it did was to give a pass to India and China, the biggest uh, producers of carbon and sulfur dioxide, mm-hmm. gave a pass to them till at least 2030 before they had to do anything. Mm-hmm. And so correspondingly, their emissions are not only the highest in the world, China has doubled the emissions of any other country in the world, mm-hmm. but they're growing at a more rapid rate. Mm-hmm. So what we do need an international agreement, but it would read nothing like the Paris Accord. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need an international agreement that would encourage other countries, give them a, an off-ramp from the pollution, yeah. give them an economically viable way to get off of coal. And we've already offered them, in many cases, uh, less pollution, uh, you know, pollution-free sources, yeah. such as our nuclear capability. But again, they're making their decisions on cost. So we need to give them an off-ramp where it can be economically viable mm-hmm. for them to go nuclear and maybe a stick as well as the carrot to, sure. to give them trade sanctions. But we have to get tough uh, in a global sense. But the, the relaxed posture we're taking toward China in particular is not getting the world anywhere in terms of environmental benefit. Right. And so just to take it one step further, the changes that we're making Europe and, and America as specifically go through to reduce additional pollution is not enough to offset the increase of pollution that we're seeing right now with China and with India. That's an excellent way to put it. That's correct. So we're, we're, and just for the listeners, it is more expensive to create solar. You and I have already talked about that. It is more expensive and, and less efficient to use wind. Wind has its place. But, and then it's, it's an expense for Germany and for California to shut down nuclear power plants that are still within their lifespan. So we, we invested all these dollars, and I see this with Germany. They closed three at the beginning of the year, if I understand, and they're in the process. At least they were prior to the Ukraine thing, closing three more. Well, those are sunk costs where we could be recapturing those investment dollars by not retiring them early. Absolutely. So as a businessman, that doesn't sound like a good idea. Well, even our governor in California is reversing and thinking of reversing his stance on Diablo Canyon and realizing Mm -hmm. after hearing more data and and looking at facts that it's just a bad decision to close Diablo Canyon at this time. Yeah. All right. So we're going to take another quick break for our sponsor and we will be right back. Thank you very much. 
Did you know that teachers unions worked with the CDC to keep our schools closed? Did you know that teachers unions contracted with school districts to take away your choice to decide whether or not to mask your child? California Parents United knew. And because of that betrayal, CPU is launching an initiative to give you your voice back. Join us in Corral del Tierra on Thursday, May 19th for the CPU Parents Rights Initiative Launch and Candidate Forum. To RSVP, go to CaliforniaParentsUnited.org. That's California parentsunited.org. See you there. Okay, so we're back. Now, one of the areas that we had led into was lithium, and we, we really haven't talked about the environmental damage that strip mining does or the increased use of water for some of their evaporation ponds. Those are means that they create and, and mine lithium that's is am i correct on that and where is it that they are doing these strip mines are they doing it over in fresno or are they doing it where i mean where's this big damage taking place well most of it is in china and uh, underdeveloped countries we have a relatively for our use of lithium we have a relatively small portion of its production Mm mm-hmm now, recently I read an article, and I, I don't know if, I'm, I'm pretty sure I shared this with you a little bit, that right now down we have the Salton Sea, and the Salton Sea definitely is a environmental problem, right? And, and it's really causing a great deal. But there is geothermal plants down there. Is geothermal a, an additional add-on that we can use for sources like this? Well, geothermal is the hidden gem. Okay. Uh, the the issue is there are two types of geothermal. Uh, there's a geothermal plant, which we have up in Sonoma mm-hmm. County, for example. And they take a relatively large footprint of habitat where they have to destroy the habitat to produce the plant. Uh, it still has its place. Yeah. But the hidden gem is what I call in situ geothermal. This is the most underdeveloped resource that we have on the planet. Hmm. And in situ geothermal means that I can have a home uh, that doesn't have to sit on top of a volcanic field, but mm-hmm. I can drill down. Uh, I have a good friend and a neighbor of mine in Scotland has created this in his own home. Mm-hmm. You drill down uh really no more than about 100 to 150 meters, and you take advantage of the thermal differential between the slightly warmer water below your home and the surface temperatures. And this system actually pays back in about seven years. It's extremely efficient. It's quiet. (laughs) It's totally environmentally friendly. And we're just not doing it. Again, it's an area we should be putting in massive amounts of research, Mm -hmm. development, and stimulation for people to do this in the United States. And that kind of sounds like Star Wars. um, because Too too good to be true. (laughs) Okay. No, I don't mean too good to be true. What I mean is, you know, there was, and I'm not a a big Star Wars fan, so I, I can't say the exact movie, but there was, you know, there was independent electrical generation and power generation with you know, residents that were sitting way out in the middle of some planet that I seem to remember. And, and you know, they either had their own little nuclear plant there or they were using this technology that you're talking about. So, the fellow in Scotland, what was his cost to actually install and get it operational? Do you have an idea of that? 
Well, it was about 12,000 pounds sterling, which is about $15,000. Okay. And how does that compare to us putting solar panels on our roof? It's similar. Similar in dollars. Great. And my understanding of this technology we're talking about is it's 24-7. So, it's not relying on the sun. Correct. So, seems like a win-win to me. Now, is it only good on a per household basis or can it be developed and patterned for a neighborhood as an example uh, a neighborhood would be viable it's mm-hmm. it's best and most efficiently used most economically used in a relatively small place it's, it's kind of like having your own water well and, yeah. and uh, you have your own you, you could have a small neighborhood that could still work okay and <clears throat> what are the limitations in terms of you know, where your home is at. If you're sitting on top of a, a granite, like not a granite mountain, but, you know, a granite-based area like Monterey Peninsula is, that'd be kind of tough drilling. But you might be in the Salinas Valley or you might be in the San Joaquin Valley or some of the other parts of our listening audience. It, it th- seems to me that there would be Oh, there's some limitations. Yeah. You you wouldn't want to drill in pure granite, but there mm-hmm. are plenty of locations where it would be t- totally viable. Mm-hmm. And again, it doesn't have to be, you know, when I've traveled in Iceland, you have hot water right under you. I mean, really hot water. Right. So that's how they heat their homes, and that's why they're energy independent. Mm-hmm. But this would be available in most aquifers because mo- practically every aquifer has this thermal differential. And most soil types are easily drillable. So, does it work like a heat pump or? Yes. Yeah, I mean, a... you're just, all you're doing is pumping the warmer water from below up mm-hmm. to the top. And you might say, well, that takes a certain amount of energy. But the, these pumps take very little energy and mm-hmm. uh, it works. Mm-hmm. It's it's economically viable. And, and it creates, for your friend in Scotland, it creates sufficient amount of electrical energy for him to be off the grid. Well, he's really doing it primarily for thermal heating. Okay. Uh, in, in Scotland, as you may know, uh, they're craving some global warming. <laughs> it's very cold year round. Right. So they use it primarily to heat their homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I wouldn't suggest it for generating electricity, but uh, for the for the heating function, I should have made that clear earlier. It's okay. it's superlative, and again, the payback period is amazing. You, mm-hmm. you pay it back in seven years. And unlike solar, you don't have a lot to renew. As long as you keep your pump working, right. your system can last 40 years. Yeah, I've had I've owned property, rental properties, and they've been on independent wells. And I, it's very rare that I've had to go in there and replace the pumps. I mean, and they're the size of a car battery. I mean, they're not massive things. Exactly. Now, the geothermal plants that they have down and around the Salton Sea, I was reading an article that one of the interesting things, because it's geothermal and it's, you know, it's not like steam coming out, it's just burbling hot mud, and I'm making it simplistic. But one of the things that they've discovered that's burbling in that hot mud is lithium. Now, the process of using the geothermal mud, and it creates basically steam that drives the turbine, which creates electricity, is they're processing this material, this hot mud, all the time. And they have the ability, and they're actually starting to do this right now, one of the plants, not the Berkshire Hathaway plants, to pull lithium out. 
Because in this particular case, there's no negative environmental impact like strip mining or the evaporation things. Do you think that, I mean, this might just be a small potato compared to the bigger picture, but doesn't it make ecological sense that we find these types of target-rich areas that provide the ability to get what we can out of it because they say they can do it economically feasible, meaning it can be profitable. Are there things like that that you see across the globe, 31 countries that you have visited, that are additional solutions to our global problems? Well, totally. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's really taking advantage of a built-in opportunity in the local environment. And that's just not something we're putting enough thought into nationally. When, when we're adopting national research policies, we think in terms of shoving massive amounts of money into solar subsidies yeah. instead of looking for what you've brought out as a wonderful targeted opportunity. Mm-hmm. And there are many such targeted opportunities around the world with different mineral resources. And, of course, most of the other countries, they will need technological help. Yeah. We have the resources and the moxie to yeah. do this kind of project of, of lithium extraction here. But we need... We really need to be looking more aggressively worldwide at ways that we can help other countries more environmentally safely um, mine their resources and put them to use. Mm -hmm. And and this is not a question that I had prepped you on. Do you you see that the war in Ukraine environmentally is a, a negative event? Well, of course. Just, that just, was easy. <laughs> just, just the amount of air, air pollution, yeah. uh, water pollution, it's enormous. Right, right. And the pollution with all the dead bodies sitting in unmarked graves. I'm just making a joke. That's not really a joke. So here's a new subject that I wanted to ask you about because I think you're actually pretty high on there. Hybrid vehicles. I love the solution. What do you think? Well, I wrote a recent article, a peer-reviewed article, and others have written the same kind of article. Uh, but it's a very easy calculation. When you do life cycle calculation of environmental benefits, hybrid vehicles cannot be beat. Wow. They're, they are number one in environmental efficiency. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two is the internal combustion engine that has reasonable gas mileage. Mm-hmm. The worst vehicle for the environment presently when looked at life cycle is the electric vehicle when you consider the manufacturing costs the battery and the disposal toxins Mm. and people don't see that well they don't see it because first of all the politicians don't talk about life cycle they talk about your operating energy day to day Mm -hmm. and uh, that's an inconvenient truth for somebody who's pushing the agenda of Mm -hmm. electric vehicles now don't get me wrong we will get to a place in our society where electric vehicles will become rather efficient. Mm -hmm. And when we're using a base load, which has more nuclear in it, uh, the energy, we still have to to fuel these electric vehicles by charging them. So when we have a higher nuclear percentage, uh, it will make a lot more environmental sense to have an electric vehicle. And when we refine the technology of battery manufacture, it'll get better and better. Mm -hmm. But right now we're ahead of our skis with the electric vehicle industry. So so a hybrid, in case you don't know on the outside, that uh, what a hybrid is, is it has both electrical battery generation and a, and a motor and a regular engine. And the regular engine recharges the batteries. 
Well, and most importantly, it's not a lithium-ion battery. Uh-huh. That's, that's the real reason that it's so environmentally effective. Mm-hmm. It's a very simple, traditional type of battery. And uh, I rented one of these new hybrids when I was on my Europe trip last month. Mm-hmm. And I got, effectively, I was getting about 68 miles per gallon because of the combined electric and uh, and petroleum fuel. Yeah. Now, with hybrid vehicles, and I have never driven one, you have, I drive a big truck because, you know, my life's needs are heavy-duty hauling. Hybrid vehicles, I only see them in tiny little spot cars, you know, not the smart cars, but, you know, small ones. Is it able to be translated into larger service vehicles? Well, uh, it is. We Again, it's an area we need more research and development to make this happen, but there's no theoretical reason why we can't be doing it. And, and again, it's an area of our federal governmental policy we're just lacking in. We should... Our federal government should be promoting hybrid vehicles like crazy. We mm-hmm. should be doing all of the above for different types of service vehicles, heavy hauling vehicles, and make this happen. There's there's no fundamental barrier. It's just, quite frankly, it's just that the between the federal government and the vehicle manufacturers, they're they're not pushing this agenda. Mm. So we only have about two more minutes to go. So. I'm going to ask this broad-based question. Lithium, which is better than the lead-acid batteries, and it was what allowed us to start with the electric vehicles, basically, but there's such issues with lithium and lithium batteries, disposal to manufacturing. Is there hope? Is there other battery technology that might be on the horizon that could solve that particular problem? Well, battery research is, is a much-needed area, again, for investment. We're not investing nearly enough in that. We hear so much talk about storing solar power generated yeah. during the day, but our battery technology is in the Stone Age mm. in terms of ability to do this in volume. So what we need right now, Edward, is research. We need to, to find better avenues, and we will. We're not there yet. But we're not there yet. But it should be coming. And, um, you know, we've run out of time. I think this was an excellent program. I certainly enjoyed it. And I wanted to thank you very much, Michael, Dr. Michael Hogan. And if you listen to the beginning of our program, you heard about all of his research and his background and his experience. And we are very pleased to bring our audience the truth and the facts to help you make a good decision. So, Michael, thank you very much. Thank you, Edward. A pleasure. And thank you, Edward King. And everyone, be sure to join us again next week on this station, again at the same time, for another edition of Business Sense Radio with your host, Edward King. Preceding was a paid commercial program, and the views expressed are those of the speaker and do not reflect the views or opinions of iHeartRadio, its staff, or management. iHeartRadio is the easy-to-use app for music and radio. Download the free iHeartRadio app today.